Oh man, so this evening we get to continue on in this sermon series in the book of Jonah. I've been having a lot of fun. I hope you've been having fun or at least learning something from it because this book is rich. Um, If you were to do a Google search or whatever your search engine is for uh, the book of Jonah, you would probably come up with, I bet you eight out of the 10 searches would probably be something with a guy in the water and a fish or a whale or something. In fact, Emily is going to put some pictures up here, uh, some of these images. So here we have the sperm whale uh, thing. I guess there's tuna in this picture. And you see, I like how they added the weeds around his head. They made that a literal thing uh, from his prayer. Uh, the next picture, uh, I think, is like the children's book kind of version where you've got the, you know, the, the fun font there. Apparently Nemo is in this one, or at least a clownfish down below. And again, we have a whale kind of picture. And then this next one is super disturbing. Josh Burdick um, did something with like chat GPT on, and this is an AI thing that just rendered it once you put in like Jonah and the, and the big fish. So I would not want to meet that ugly mug face to face. Yeah. So you may have noticed, like you've been paying attention to the sermon series that I have preached for four, four sermons so far in the book of Jonah. And I've mentioned that fish, besides when it comes up in the text, I've preached on that fish zero times. Uh, Four sermons in Jonah, and zero times have I mentioned the fish, or a whale, or a sea creature. Uh, Why is that, you might be asking? Well, because the book of Jonah, which is only four short chapters long, that that whole thing, the, the episode with the sea creature is surprisingly short. It's incredibly vague, and it's almost mentioned in the passage as a sort of matter of fact. Jonah went in the water, and God appointed a fish, and it swallowed him, and then it spit him up, and now we're on to the next thing. The actual story, the book of Jonah, does not make a big deal of the fish. I think that's kind of weird, because it seems like a big deal, like if I got swallowed by something, right? But the sea creature in the story of Jonah seems to be simply a vehicle, really, that gets Jonah from where he was headed to where God wants him to be. And yet, like, I totally get the appeal. We all want to know more about this sea creature. Was it a fish? Was it a whale? Was it some kind of being that we still haven't discovered yet because it's like one of those weird sea creatures with the the light, you know, an anglerfish or something? Or was it some like mythological type creature that maybe God has just in his special storehouse he brings out for special occasions? And maybe the question I get most from, from people outside the walls of this church and from you all is, is this story a historical account Or is it something else? Well, today, finally, after four sermons, this fifth one, we get to kind of dive in to that big question. And I want to communicate clearly how I'm going to divide this preaching moment, okay? So the first part, I'm going to lean more towards the teaching side of things. I'm going to be exploring some ways that that we can read biblical texts and how we can approach a book like Jonah, okay? So that's going to be the first part, actually the first two-thirds probably, because it's a slog. And then in the second part of the message, I'm going to actually preach the section of scripture we're looking at today, Jonah 1, 17 through 2, 10. And after all, the whole point of the book of Jonah is to preach to us. It's to allow the word of God to inform us and to transform us, right? So I'm going to pray because I'm going to need help with that. Lord, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for your graciousness in all the creative ways you reveal yourself. For history nerds, you have history books in the Bible. And for people who just want to follow the, the dust of Jesus' feet, you have four biographies in the Gospels. For the artists among us, you have rich poetry and so many other ways of meeting us where we're at. Lord, would you meet us tonight in this book of Jonah that is awesome and awesomely confusing. Lord, help us to hear your voice. Amen. All right. So let's dive right in and just ask the question, like, how do we interpret Jonah? To start with, we better just pull back from the book of Jonah for a minute and consider the whole of Scripture, Genesis through Revelation, all of it, all the books in between are inspired by God, and they are true in the sense that they truly reveal to us who God is, who human beings are, how we can relate to God and to each other, and they tell us as a collective whole, like what life is for. Every story, every poem, every historical account, every metaphor in scripture all works together as a unified whole to point us to Jesus and to point us to the good life. Now, Within that unified story, there are all sorts of ways that God communicates through Scripture, His message to us, right? So sometimes that message that He communicates to us in Scripture is in the form of a parable or a story that's not meant to be taken as a historical event, but as a vehicle for a message. And I'll give you an example. Uh, you know the story of the prodigal son in Scripture, right? It is a powerful message of God's Mercy, that father with his arms out. I have that painting, uh, well, a computer printout of it <laughs> in my office. It means so much to me to think of God as that father receiving me and loving me. And, and I, when I pray too, I, I imagine him receiving you and loving you. That is, that is a parable. No one thinks that there was actually a father and a prodigal son that did all this stuff. And that was never the intent. Jesus told a story to communicate what God's love is like. And it's true and it's powerful and it's inspired by God and it's scripture. Does that make sense? Right? So that's one way that God can communicate his message. And sometimes complete biblical books are like parables, such as the book of Job. And if you'd like to hear more about that, uh, consider looking at last year's Stranger Things series. It's on our website. When I talked about Job, Satan, what the heck is going on in that scene, right? And uh, that was one of the questions our youth had. And so I kind of dig down and explore that. But what it looks like is the book of Job probably probably is a massive literary work to tell us something about evil and God and sovereignty. It's not supposed to necessarily be a historical guy that had all this stuff, and then all in his suffering, all of his friends just happened to respond in perfect poetry. Um, okay, so that's, that's an example of a book that is a literary piece that is true and in scripture, but not meant to be an historical of, uh, uh, account. On the other hand, you have uh, things in the Bible, historical events 
that are the message. The event itself communicates something about God. So I'll give you an example. The incarnation of God in the birth of Jesus is an astounding miracle. It is the message. It's not a metaphor. It's not a story. It's like eyewitness account and like this really happened. And the message is, look at God's love and his humility and his commitment to his covenant promises shown in the historical event of the birth of Jesus. The calming of the storm in, in the gospels or the, the, the raising of the sick or the healing of the sick or the raising of Lazarus from the dead, these are all presented to us as historical events with eyewitnesses from multiple sources. The events are the message. And maybe the most powerful one, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. It is the message. It is the sign. Jesus has conquered death. New creation is unleashed on the world. Ah, the event, the historical event, is the message. How do we interpret the book of Jonah then? What kind of story is this? What kind of literature is this? Is it history? Is it poetry? Is it biography? Is it wisdom? Is it something else, novel and new and one of a kind? Well, jo Jonah is in the Bible. It is in a, a pack of, of other prophets. There's 12 minor prophets, and he is in that company of 12 prophets. But Jonah, of the 12, he's the only one that stands uniquely as different than the other 11. The other 11 minor prophets contain sayings of the prophets as the word of God. They're written to hold Israel and Israel's leadership and her people accountable to the covenant that they made with God. So if you open up a book like Amos, I mean, you just imagine this guy like yelling at people like, hey, you guys are like going after idols and you're not treating the poor properly. And what about the widows? And get your act together. You're not behaving like the people of God. And that's a lot of the minor prophets are like that, bringing people to account. And they, they're mainly talking about things like idolatry or, um, you know, not tending... Um, not, not doing their worship correctly, like not actually making sacrifices in worship, but uh, they're, they're talking about how they, the people don't treat the weakest among them with compassion and dignity. Jonah is different. Unlike the other prophetic books, Jonah speaks no words of prophecy to Israel, at least not overtly. In fact, in the book, he speaks five Hebrew words to the Ninevites. That's it. He doesn't act as a prophet at all. Instead, the book of Jonah reads more like a short story. And while you could read it as a historical narrative, many scholars uh, read it more like a satire or a parable. For example, notice that every character in the book of Jonah is an upside-down caricature of what they would really be like in real life, right? They act oppositely of what you would expect. So the, the pagan sailors on this boat in Jonah, they have more faith by far than the Hebrew prophet. In the end, they come to worship God while Jonah is left sulking and angry and yelling at God. In a similar way, the Ninevites, who were the most arrogant and brutal people by a long shot in the ancient world, they express humility 
and repentance. Well, Jonah never repents, not once in the entire book. And then there's Jonah himself. Jonah was a real historical figure. He's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14 as a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. But here's the thing. Jeroboam was widely considered one of Israel's worst kings, often leading his people to idolatry and to violence. And where is the other prophets who also prophesied when Jonah was alive to Jeroboam II? Prophets like Amos and Hosea, these guys prophesied against Jeroboam's policies. Jonah was in favor of Jeroboam and supported his nationalist violence. So if you're going to write a social satire, you could hardly come up with a more shocking story than to have Jonah sent to the Ninevites, having the pagan sailors and the Ninevites act more holy and more humbly than the only Israelite in the story. Then there's more things, like a highly stylized writing in Jonah. Jonah, the son of Amittai. You know, Jonah means dove. Amittai means son of righteousness. So, so dove, the son of righteousness. Dove is a symbol for peace and a, uh, a symbol for Israel. Uh, Jonah acts completely opposite of a peacemaker. And he is anything but righteous. And as you've noticed in the past few weeks... The use of repetition of, of word plays like up and down, which we've done with our hand motions when we've read scripture, and the Hebrew word gadol or great, used 14 times in this tiny little book of four chapters. And then there's the symmetry, which we're going to explore next week. But if you line up chapters one and two with chapters three and four, verse for verse, they go together in a perfect zipper pattern intricately created. This is a literary masterpiece. Even non-Jewish, non-Christian people look at Jonah as a work of Hebrew art. Now, hear me. Using satire or literary devices does not mean that this book shouldn't be taken as historical, but it might suggest that it doesn't have to be taken as historical. Let's look at the historical evidence. We're already, we've already mentioned the unlikelihood of a whole ship of pagan sailors converting to Yahweh uh, after being rescued from a storm. But what's more shocking is that all the Ninevites, staunch enemies of Israel, would come to repent of their wicked ways based on a five-word sermon that literally says, yet 40 days... And Nineveh will be overthrown. That's five Hebrew words. In English, it's a little more because they really pack it in in there. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all Jonah says to this whole group of wicked people. And then he says, I imagine I'm putting the bird up and walking away. And then they say, oh, we repent. And not just the Ninevites. The king of the Ninevites, every man, woman, and child of the Ninevites. And get this, the cows repent. The cows put on sackcloth and ashes and repent to Yahweh. Does that strike you as weird? Then there's a the reality that while Assyria had been a major player in the world scene before Jonah's life, and they would rise to major prominence after Jeroboam II and after Jonah's life, 
The time when Jonah prophesied to Jeroboam II under his reign, they were nothing. Assyria didn't have a capital in Nineveh. There was no king of Assyria at the time, more like tribal warlords. And so it's suggestive that that Jonah was written far in the future when the reader would know that Assyria was a powerhouse, that there was a king in Nineveh, and that there was a capital in Nineveh. There's zero historical evidence in Israel's history or in Assyrian history um, that, that the Assyrians ever repented or humbled themselves before God. In fact, what ends up happening is Assyria will conquer and destroy the northern kingdom completely. And then the Babylonians would come and destroy the Assyrians. And then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> I can go down a rabbit hole. So in the end... These historical markers don't rule out reading Jonah as a historical event, but the evidence seems to point more strongly in the direction that this is a satire, a satirical story meant to kind of relay a message to Israel and to us about God's love for all people and to remind them and us that while we're privileged to know God and to have the scriptures, we're called to use that privilege to love our neighbors as ourselves, even those neighbors. In fact, that's why the whole book of Jonah, I believe, ends the way it does, without any resolution. It ends with a question, asking whether or not Jonah and whoever reads this story, so that's us, uh, whether or not we think that God should have compassion on other people. Do we have reason to be angry or upset that he would be compassionate on our enemies? That's how the book ends. A perfect rhetorical device if you're trying to get people to think and to ask themselves a question. It's like you're following along with this incredible story about this crazy Jonah and this fish, and you're like, you're all in, you're all in, and all of a sudden it ends with a mirror. And you're like, oh, I'm supposed to ask myself this question. That's how the book works. So was Jonah swallowed whole by a giant fish? That's why I know you're all just like, get to it, man. Um, Well, that's what the story says. And you could read that story faithfully, faithfully, orthodoxly in two ways. And I want you to, to hear that. You can read this as literal history. We have a God, I don't know if you knew this, who does like pretty amazing things. We have a God who can certainly command a giant sea creature to swallow a human man. And he could expand that creature's belly or find one that's really big and mature that has a belly big enough. He could, he could do that. He could, he could make it, its digestive juices slow down a little bit. And he could make it so that the smooth muscle tissues and the digestive tract don't compress in on this human being for a few short days. He can do that. He can make a I mean, this is where like sci-fi is so helpful. He could make a force field in there. He could, I mean, it's God. Like he can do whatever he wants. The guy turns water to wine, raises dead people. He, he's done more amazing miracles in the Bible that we believe, that I believe, than, than have a fish or a whale swallow a guy and keep him alive for a period of time. Like he just can do it. So, so that's okay. I have no problem. This could totally be a historical thing. He, like I said, he raises the dead, turns water to wine. Oh, did you, he created the universe. Like, it's that God. So he can do stuff like this. He can do a fish miracle. 
So you can read it that way faithfully. You're in really good company if you read the story that way, okay? Breathe if you're like, what's he gonna say? There, okay? Now, or you could read this story faithfully. You can also be faithfully a card-carrying Christian, whatever that means. I don't have a card. But like, you can be in the Orthodox company. A lot of really Jesus-loving people and scholars also think a different way, and that is that Jonah might be satire, in which the message is not in the historical event of a literal fish and actual Ninevites repenting, but where the message is the meaning of the story that causes us to reflect on the reality that God unrationally loves us in our sin, loves the worst people in your life more than they deserve. And the question is, are you going to be okay with that? Because the God who extends mercy to those people that have done you wrong is the same God who extends that mercy to you. One thing I would caution against is trying to judge the Jonah story based on what we think is possible or impossible. Trying to judge the Jonah story based on the sea creatures that we think we know about because there's just a whole lot we don't know about. If we are Bible people who place our faith in the God that the Bible reveals we place our faith in the resurrection of Jesus that eyewitnesses point toward, and we have the work of the Spirit who has empowered the church for centuries, then we cannot discount the reality of a real man named Jonah and a real fish that rescued him. Okay. So if your reading of the text leads you to believe that Jonah and the fish are a literal historical event, then you have warrant to believe that. And if you want to believe it as satire, you have warrant to believe that. It's a metaphor, okay? So the rabbit hole is so deep, I can tell we can have future conversations, uh, and I would love to do that. But can, can we, I'm just going to leave it there. There's, and what I always like to do when I preach, if there are multiple orthodox tracks, I'm only going to lead us into orthodoxy, but if there are multiple orthodox tracks, my MO is I'm going to present to you what I think the scriptures are saying, and where there's gray area, I'll show you two, three, four, or in this case, two um, orthodox tracks, and let's continue the conversation, and you continue your journey, because what you don't need is me telling you how to think. I have too much respect for you. Uh, for that. Okay. Okay. So at this point, I want to turn our attention to the actual text today. Oh, is he actually going to preach the Bible or just all these concepts? Okay. So here we go. Um, what is Jesus maybe saying to us through this part of the story? Now, you might recall that Jonah was running from God because he didn't want to do what God commanded him to do. He didn't want to go to the Ninevites and risk them repenting and, and, and receiving God's mercy. And so he goes the other direction. And so God sends this storm, and Jonah uh, has this conundrum, and he basically says, my life is forfeit. Throw me over. I mean, it's basically a suicide attempt. And he uh, is in the water, and then we pick up the story. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, um, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. 
two sentences, and I just got to stop because this is so packed with meaning. Okay, so before we even get to Jonah's prayer, let me just pause to comment on these two verses. Jonah's in the water, and God appoints a great fish. There's that word again, right? Great, 14 times in the, in the Jonah story. And the Hebrew word for fish is transliterated D-A-G, but you pronounce it dog, like the huskies, like go dogs, right? So, uh, so it's a dog. So this fish is the Hebrew word dog. And, and, and God appoints this dog, this fish, to gobble up Jonah. Now, the interesting thing about this word is that it's incredibly vague. Hebrew is not nearly as precise a language as Greek is. Um, so a dog could mean a fish, it could mean a whale. People in the ancient world didn't have taxonomy and didn't, I mean, they rare, first of all, Israelites were afraid of the sea almost as a, as a rule. So like they didn't, unless it's something washed up on the beach, you're not going to know the difference. And anyway, so dog could mean fish. It could mean whale. It could mean big fish. And especially if you put gadol in front of it, like they do here. So big fish or big whale. It could also mean sea creature or sea beast. Okay? Sea creatures are these semi-mythic beings like, uh, that are described in the Bible like behemoth. Maybe you've heard of the behemoth in like the book of Job or Leviathan is mentioned in the Psalms or the great sea serpents. In many ancient cultures, these powerful sea monsters were actually agents of chaos, but throughout scripture, God is shown to be the master of these sea creatures. And in fact, in Genesis 1, chapter 21, we're told that God created the great sea monsters and that they are good. <laughs> it doesn't say they're safe or tame or that you should have one as a pet, but like all of creation, they're good. And when the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek called the Septuagint, the translator chose to translate that word dog, not as fish or as whale, but as a kitas, which means sea monster. I think that's an interesting nuance because the Greek language has nuance and it has more specificity. So they could have taken that word dog and made it a fish or made it a whale, but they made it a sea monster or a sea creature. That's interesting to me. Again, this could be a literal animal. Uh, and if that were so, there would be, uh, still be a theological message here. Even if it was a literal giant sea monster uh, that God created, there's a theological message. And it, it was God who commanded this fish, whale, or monster uh, to swallow Jonah. And when the sea monster is first mentioned in verse 17 of Jonah, right, it's in the masculine form. It's a, it's a boy dog. But when it's mentioned again, just in chapter 2, one, or, yeah, chapter two verse 1, which is the next verse, right? Uh, stick with me now. It's in the feminine form. So the boy dog eats Jonah, and then it's described as a daga, which is a female fish or sea monster. Let me read it more literally. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the womb of the female sea monster. The text is not saying that the fish changed gender, but that this horrifying event of being swallowed by a monster has actually come, become a womb for Jonah to be born again. To be transformed in the crucible of fear and second chances. To be made new in the darkness of death and yet with the promise of new life. Have you heard anything like that before? 
The sea monster then is not intended to be the final call on Jonah's life. I don't know what you think because we know the outcome of the story, but imagine you're in the water and a giant monster fish or whale, doesn't matter, swallowed you. Are you immediately thinking, yes, I'm saved? You're thinking, no, I'm like in the Sarlacc pit or something, slow digestion or something. I don't know what, I wouldn't be thinking this is a good thing. Jonah is like quickly sobered up, like all of his pettiness and I don't want to do this and da 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 da. I mean, it all comes to it. This is rock bottom for Jonah. Coming to your senses. And for him, it became a chance to come closer to God. Jonah in the belly of the fish. The, the word literally means womb of the sea monster for three days and three nights. By the way, three days and three nights is a colloquialism. It's not a time marker. Three days and three nights was a metaphorical time period that people in the ancient world believed it took for a dead person to travel to Sheol, the place of death or the, 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 the place of rest. So by the way, this has, this has legs when we think about Jesus in the tomb for three days and three nights, because I know you look at it literally and it's like, well, he, isn't he in there only two days? And we do all kinds of funny things. Well, actually the Jews, you know, night starts in here and you can do all that. That's fine. But you don't have to do that because this colloquialism means basically it's the time for a person to be dead, dead. And that's the point of Jesus in the tomb is that he was really dead. And that's the point of Jonah is that he could have been in that fish's belly for hours, not days. The point is that he thought he was dead. He was taken down to that place of reckoning. And it's from this womb of horror and severe mercy that Jonah responds. And he said, I called out in my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. For you had cast me in the deep into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me, weeds wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. He's describing a watery prison, the foundations of the very earth. But you have brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered you. Read, I remember your covenant. I remember your covenant-keeping love. That's what that's talking about. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. <laughs> Those who, are vain, uh, who revere false idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I vowed to pay salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, whale, sea creature, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. By the time that this book came out, even, even if you take it as a literal, literal historical event, at the time period that Jonah was living and prophesying, most of the Psalms had already been written. Most of the Psalms were in the practice of worship in the people of God. So it's no surprise that Jonah uses stock metaphors and imagery 
as he's crying out to God. There's at least a dozen psalms represented in Jonah's psalm. And if you read through the psalms, I read through the psalms every month. And I'm starting to just pick up, you know, like, oh, that one is referencing that one. And, you know, they all borrow and it's like pop music. We all borrow the same stuff over and again, the same riffs. Anyway, um, so, so Jonah has this worship language and it's representative of his knowledge of the Psalms and he's responding in that way. His prayer here in Jonah 2 is very much like the Psalms of praise. It's a category of Psalms. You know, Psalms, they have lament Psalms and praise Psalms and wisdom Psalms. And this is like praise Psalms. And so people who are reading Jonah, especially faithful Israelites who know the Psalms well, will recognize, hey, this is like a praise psalm, except for it's also not like a praise psalm. So it's, it's different. And, it, and it's almost as if Jonah's prayer or his psalm is holding two truths parallel together at the same time. And I think that's exactly what's going on in this. And what I'm going to do is just tease that out for you really quickly. So if we read Jonah's, if we follow one of those lines of reasoning, if we read Jonah's prayer or his psalm through the lens of positivity, we could say things like, man, I see a man here who's praising God for hearing him in his distress, right? You hear that in the psalm? Um, We see a man who's humbled by his near-death experience, a man who appears appreciative that God rescued him. Jonah appears to be ready to give thanks to God and to double down on his righteous living. You know, like those guys do idle stuff. I'm righteous. Mm, made me want to be good again, God. And Jonah at his best is praising God in this psalm. So that's the positive read. But then you've got to read the whole thing, right? And there's another take on this. Um, well, let me just show you the tension. Nowhere. Nowhere in this prayer of Jonah does he even come close to repenting of his attitude or his actions. Jonah seems to blame God for his predicament of being in this thing's tomb. He's like, you exiled me and you sent me down here. There's no ownership of of like, oh, maybe this is a consequence of your sin, (laughs) of your disobedience. Jonah is the one who ran from God, right? Jonah is reaping the consequences of that running, yet he blames God in the psalm. Because he's saved, he thanks God, right? That's, that's normal. But rather than humbling himself, he doubles down on his perceived righteousness in comparison to other people. And he references those who practice idolatry uh, that can only mean, right, the, the people on the ship he was just on and maybe the Ninevites he was going to. Jonah still ironically sees himself as better than all those other people. You know what I was thinking about the other day? He probably doesn't know that those sailors got saved. He probably has no idea. I'm special. I'm the Hebrew. I'm in the belly of the whale. You know, he has no idea that those guys actually fell on their knees and made vows to Yahweh and started to praise him. Doesn't even cross his mind that that could be something that, that could occur. And by the end of the book, we know that even after this ordeal in the belly of the sea creature, Jonah will not change his attitude. He will continue to struggle with hatred toward the Assyrians. He's going to judge God for God's severe mercy toward them. And here's the takeaway. (laughs) I don't know if you're ready for this, but I've been wrestling with it all week. Jonah's us. 
and we're Jonah. Every one of us is a walking contradiction. Wanting to be loving, we want to be caring, we want to be peaceful people, and yet aren't we like consistently betrayed by our prejudices and our selfishness and our anger? Constantly betrayed by our fear that makes us standoffish, by the effects of past trauma that makes us suspicious, right? By our biology, our biology can betray us, our brain chemistry, and frankly, just our plain sinful rebellion. We, like Jonah, sing praises to God here in church. We likely sin in thought, word, or deed before we leave the door to the parking lot. It's just the way we are. And the story of Jonah points us, and everyone who reads it, to the need of a savior, right? Like we, like Jonah, require severe mercy. We're not just like sort of a little bit off, but we have like a tendency to consistently mess things up. And in this story, God's severe mercy is presented as good news, but it's vague. A sea creature, a vine for shade, a repentant nation, an ambiguous ending to a book. But in Jesus, that severe mercy is made specific. In Jesus, we see God himself make the journey to Sheol three days and three nights. The sign of Jonah, the God who dies for us and for the world, God's severe mercy is severe on himself and severely generous to us. So take heart. In the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, we say, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Then who is the one who could possibly condemn us? No one. For Christ has died more than that. He was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God who is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or swords? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, says Paul, and me too, I'm pretty convinced too, <laughs> that neither death or life or angels or demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers or fishy sea monsters or light nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the good news, my friends. We're going to transition now to a time of healing prayer. It's fourth Sunday of the month, and Leslie White and I have the privilege of praying for you at these um, healing benches.